0: It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.
1: Saturday, September 23rd, 2023. I'm Jared Halpern. The House is frozen, with Republicans unable to pass spending bills despite a fast-approaching government shutdown.
0: We've certainly seen gridlock, uh, but not quite where it's gridlock among
2: one party, in this case, the Republicans. I'm Ryan Schmelz. Democrats are hoping to keep the bluegrass state blue, but Republicans are hoping to remind them that Kentucky is a red state. How could the Kentucky gubernatorial election impact 2024?
3: The polls suggest that Andy Bashir has been able to maintain his popularity with voters who are not Democrats, with voters who even tend to prefer Republicans.
1: This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. But so far, nothing House Speaker Kevin McCarthy or his allies have tried to prevent a government shutdown is working. It's been so chaotic that even procedural votes on usually popular bipartisan legislation have failed. And by Thursday, the paralysis was so severe, members were sent home, told votes are unlikely on anything before early next week. That, of course, will leave lawmakers scant time to pass a spending bill short term or long term before a government shutdown is triggered at the strike of midnight on Sunday, October 1st. Even our senior Capitol Hill correspondent Chad Pergram, who has covered his share of shutdowns and spending fights, says the current level of frustration is especially high.
0: Well, we've certainly seen gridlock, uh, but not quite where it's gridlock among one party, in this case, the Republicans. I will say when we had the government shutdown in 2018, 2019, the longest government shutdown in American history, 35 days, that it started with a Republican Senate, a Republican House and a Republican president. And of course, Democrats had gotten the the house after that. And so it flipped, you know, just after Christmas, it it started uh, in late 2018. So Republicans, some people have pointed out, shut themselves down in that case because they couldn't come to their own agreement. Uh, Here you have Republicans in the House who they have this majority razor thin, as I always say, it's about the math, but they don't have enough votes to be able to pass their own bills. You have about 200 Republicans in the House who are willing to go along with most things that Kevin McCarthy is willing to do, but you have this group of about 5 to 20, depending on the day, of political arsonists, Uh, and this is the term that Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker, said the other day, they just want to burn the building down. They're not going to be for anything. And so what happened the past couple of days, they tried twice, three times really, uh, to bring up their own defense bill. They, they short circuited the first time uh, about a week or so ago. And then twice, there's a procedural vote you have to get through uh, to even put the bill on the floor to begin debate on that. And that failed twice, which is almost unheard of because that's that's a, the majority losing control of the floor. And, you know, that never happened under Nancy Pelosi it never happened under John Boehner. It never happened under Paul Ryan. It happened only a couple of times under Newt Gingrich's speaker and also under Dennis Hastert. So to have this happen twice in a matter of three days is extraordinary. And and just to give you a sense of how uh, shaky things were up here. So that procedural vote failed. McCarthy seemed very much like a a beaten man, but says, okay, we're going to try. There were meetings in his offices. They sent everybody home. And then about an hour later, And we're talking about sending people home until Tuesday. So people are getting on planes. You have Yom Mm -hmm. Kippur, the the Jewish holidays coming up Sunday sundown to Monday sundown. And then they say, oh, no, maybe we won't send everybody home. We want people to come back within an hour. And so even the, you know, the, you know, the fragility of the decision making process here on Capitol Hill has not been good.
1: I want to go back to that quote you said from McCarthy, where he accused members in his own conference of trying to burn the place down. Mm-hmm. That's language usually that is said about the other party by the other party, right? I mean, you hear yes. the White House and, and Democrats say that these MAGA extremists just want to burn the the, the the Capitol to the ground, burn the government to the ground. Unusual to hear that from the Speaker of the House talking about members of his own party, isn't it?
0: Well, it shows you the level of frustration that Kevin McCarthy has with these folks. Uh, he has tried now to negotiate in good faith. He doesn't feel that some of the members have been truthful with him. Uh, He has problems in the numbers, the math, because Steve Scalise, the majority leader, has been out because he has cancer and Mm -hmm. is receiving treatment. Uh, Anna Paulina Luna, a Republican from Florida who, based on what she said publicly, would probably be with the group of the, quote, arsonists, quote, unquote. Uh, She just had a baby, but said she would come back to vote no. So maybe having her away actually helps McCarthy, Uh, you know, but but that's where there was a lot of debate about how to approach this weekend. Would they be in voting? Well, they don't have anything to vote on. They can't pass anything. So what they decided mm-hmm. to do in this, they think, and I'll underscore that again, they think this will satisfy some conservatives, is to show work on four of the individual spending bills. And and they're going to consider them in the rules committee and, and try to get this ready to go come next week. Now, whether or not those things can pass anybody is anybody's guess. But the bigger picture here and the most important picture here is that that doesn't mean that we avoid a government shutdown. There are 12 individual spending bills. And mm-hmm. just because the House is able to pass four, which is far from an, you know assured situation right now, mm-hmm. we don't know. Here's the other problem that people haven't alluded to. I mean, you know, McCarthy saw this train coming. And so he he thought he would be able to get people to buy in because of do an interim spending bill with the promise that they would get these bills done during the fall. Maybe this was the wink and the nod, maybe announcing an impeachment inquiry would help. But they had trouble uh, getting agreement on even some of the simpler spending bills in July. The agriculture spending bill. We're talking about the defense bill, which was loaded with all sorts of things that Republicans wanted, uh, getting rid of the abortion policy from the Pentagon that Senator Tommy Tuberville had been filibustering, had been blocking uh, the promotions of some of these uh, uh, top military officials for a week, getting rid of so-called quote, woke policies in the military. And they couldn't even get that bill on the floor. Um, but to also show you just how uh, you know shaky the ground has been here for Kevin McCarthy is that uh, last weekend on Sunday, I got word that. They had a plan for a bill that would keep the government open, would actually cut some spending on a temporary basis and bolster the border. Well, that plan was dashed by about Monday night. Then they had a meeting on Wednesday that they were going to have a plan to bolster the border, keep the government open, um, uh, you know, cut a little bit of spending, create a commission uh, to study the debt. And then that was supposed to give them entree to pass the defense bill. And that was dead by 10 o'clock the next morning. So every plan that Kevin McCarthy has tried has blown up and blown up quick. In fact, okay, somebody so, asked me the other day, how, how, you know, what plan was I said, I can't keep track because well, they're so, only out there yeah. for a few
1: hours. And let's talk about that. Let's say that even let's say that that one of these plans eventually gets over the finish line. Right. And yes. it does so with only Republican votes because these are not going to be Uh, you know, CRs that that are approved by Democrats. The Senate then changes it to something that probably is much more bipartisan, drops Mm -hmm. the immigration stuff, adds funding for you, whatever, right? It goes back to the House. At that point, Kevin McCarthy is going to have to rely on votes from Democrats to keep the government open. Can he do that and also keep his job as Speaker of the House?
0: The irony here is that if you want to avert a government shutdown by next weekend— There are the votes to do that in the House and the Senate. You can probably get a coalition of 65 to 70 plus Democrats and Republicans in the Senate to do that. And then um, probably a neighborhood of 275 to 300 votes in the House, bipartisan. Mm -hmm. But once as once Kevin McCarthy goes down that road and we get to next weekend and there is a shutdown or they're trying to get this done before the shutdown or the shutdown happens over the weekend, but not before Monday morning or something like that, once he pulls that trigger. Matt Gates, although he's not said this, and I really challenged Matt Gaetz about this the other day, the Republican from Florida. Would you, in fact, introduce that motion to vacate? In other words, demand mm-hmm. a new speaker's election in the middle of the Congress. And he said the following. That's the point, Chad. Use my name, mind you. We didn't write that resolution to put it up on a shelf somewhere just to admire it. So he's ready to go. I will say he didn't say anything about putting it on a changing table in the men's restroom on the first floor of the Capitol where somebody actually found a copy of the resolution. I don't know
1: if that's the shelf he's talking about, but maybe it is. uh, Not exactly a shelf, that's pretty small. (laughs) But um, um, that's generally where, yeah. But that's the the, the challenge, right? Because if you're Kevin McCarthy and you know that vote's going to happen, Listen, we should bear in mind here and make clear that Kevin McCarthy still has an awful lot of support amongst Republicans, right? By and large, House Republicans support Kevin McCarthy. If there were a vote uh, to vacate, uh, those yes votes from Republicans would, would be small. The question is how do Democrats then handle it, right? Do they want to force a new speaker's election or... Do they maybe find some deals to be made with Kevin McCarthy to say, listen, we'll either not show up to the vote, we'll vote present, whatever, you know, to to kind of keep him in in office. Uh, But it means maybe their terms to a C.R.
0: Kevin McCarthy, you know, faces this problem. And Hakeem Jeffries has been very um, stealth. I would say he's been pretty cagey about it, too. Yeah. Yes. And, And in fact, I've been to two press conferences in the past several weeks where Hakeem Jeffries has been asked this question, and he has said, well, we've not even thought about that. Now, I I really find that hard to believe. <laughs> They're the only people
1: not that. thinking about it.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. But the bottom line is, is that, yes, there could be some sort of a deal that could be made. Don Byer, I think we've talked about this, the Democrat mm-hmm. from Virginia, said he thought that he might actually— you know, vote to keep the speaker. Now, now, now I want to, this is going to be in the weeds, but it's really important, Jared, the parliamentary mechanics. And this is why Kevin McCarthy probably survives. It's about the math again. There's strength in numbers. As I said earlier, there's 200 some odd Republicans who are going to support him no matter Mm -hmm. what. Yeah. So, you know, they, they are, you know, outgunning the other side by a lot, five to 20, maybe depending on the day or the mood. So, the first, so let's say Gates introduces his motion. You would have somebody who is a McCarthy loyalist who would then stand up on the House floor and say, I move to table this resolution or move mm-hmm. to refer it to committee. Now, this is an effort to euthanize that resolution. Mm-hmm. So, that secondary motion that is made is what they actually vote on. And the chances, because of the numbers I just stated, are very high that the secondary motion prevails. So, in other words, they set it aside, they move it to committee, whatever. So you never actually vote on the motion to vacate. If it were to fail, that secondary motion, well, then you actually vote on the motion to vacate. And if the secondary motion failed, then the primary motion is... I'm sorry, if the the secondary motion fails, then the primary motion, which is the motion to vacate, is adopted. And then what happens? Doomsday. And I don't... (laughs) Say that with hyperbole, because yeah. what you have, you've had, you might be in the middle of a government shutdown, frankly, and you immediately then go to a vote for speaker and the house cannot, can't do anything on the floor until you elect a speaker.
1: Including a vote to, vote to end at, the government shutdown.
0: That's right. You can now, now yeah. the difference here between January is that members have been sworn in, committees are standing and all that. So some of that will continue to go on, but in terms of what would happen on the floor, including possibly reopening the government. If God forbid that scenario would unfold in the middle of a government shutdown, uh, I don't know. And you know, you and I've talked about long speakers races before, you know, there were these two speakers, Nathaniel Banks and Hal Cobb. Um, Mm -hmm. Hal Cobb had a, a two week speakers race in 1849. And then in 1855, dragging into 1856, you had Nathaniel Banks And that was the longest speakers race in history. It took two months and 163 ballots.
1: So as we talk about leadership in Congress, let's talk a little bit about New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez, the Democrat now indicted on federal bribery charges. The indictment lays out some pretty um, damning allegations against the senator, frankly, who is the chair of the very important Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He is going to have to step down as that position, right?
0: Yeah, that's when you're under indictment. And that's what happened when he faced his legal problems a few years ago, that he had to step aside uh, from being the top Democrat on that committee. So that will happen. Uh, This comes as Congress is out of session. So there's no statements yet from the senator, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Uh, We just don't know, know where this is going to go. With that, But, you know, he faced legal problems some years ago in, in 2015 uh, and continued to be a senator, uh, but, uh, you know, had those those issues. He was eventually exonerated. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's been planning to run for reelection. Uh, his his wife, Nadine Menendez, has been indicted in this as well. So, uh, you know, th- this could potentially potentially put this seat in play. You, you know, Republicans thought they might have a chance to get at Menendez last time after the mm-hmm. indictment. That did not work out. But again, sometimes, uh, you know, this would be the second time around for Menendez, uh, whether he's guilty or innocent, and it just doesn't look good, especially Since you wonder You at what point, trial. You
1: maybe, and yeah. you wonder at what point maybe Schumer says enough's enough and, and looks yeah. at the map and looks at the, the politics of it. And, and, you know, you see pressure maybe applied in that direction. That's right. That's right. Let's finish with Senate rules. <laughs> um, everybody on Capitol Hill seems to be a, uh, the fashion police is of late, Chad, because of uh, a relaxing of the uh, dress code for senators. Um, I know a lot's been made about John Fetterman in his casual attire. It's what he wore as lieutenant governor, by the way, of Pennsylvania. This sort of hoodie and, and cargo shorts look is not new for him. It's what he has uh, long worn as <laughs> he's held uh, elected office. But Um, At least most Republicans seem pretty upset that this is not being uh, enforced, uh, the the shirt and tie and suit and all of that, the business attire is not being enforced. Um, How big a deal is this in the U.S. Senate?
0: Well, the fact that this happened about a week ago and the fact that we're still talking about it (laughs) tells you a lot. Um, and, and, And the fact that this story has broken through more than impeachment next to the possibility of government shutdown about what people are supposed to wear. Now, what's interesting, you said the rule. There is no rule in the Senate about what you're supposed to wear. That's true. It's implied. But what happened is that over time there became, and this is kind of how the Senate rolls to start with, Jared, here, there's a lot of folkways and customs that aren't written down anywhere. This is just kind of how you do things up there. And this applies to both members and staff and even journalists who cover the place. Uh, What's ironic now is that any senator can come onto the floor and wear pretty much what they want, but if you work for the institution, you're one of the parliamentarians, you're a clerk, stenographer, you have to wear a coat and tie if you're a man or appropriate business attire Mm -hmm. if you're a a woman. Uh, So, you know, for me to go into the Senate chamber as a reporter just Mm -hmm. to watch, I would have to wear a coat and tie. Mm -hmm. So this isn't written anywhere. What Schumer did was he told the sergeant at arms, Karen Gibson, you know, don't require this. Don't stop him at the door. He can kind of wear what he wants. Well, this faced this big backlash from Mitch McConnell said he opposed this idea, said we shouldn't be wearing jeans. Uh, there's a lot of people who uh, kind of made light of this, and there was a, a, a large coalition of most Republicans in the Senate mm-hmm. who wrote uh, to Schumer who said, uh, we think that this should not be uh, the policy. Uh, Joe Manchin, the Democrat from West Virginia, Alluded to the fact that he's going to have a resolution uh, on this issue uh, to maybe you know formalize the dress code. Sherrod Brown, the Democrat from Ohio, the same thing uh, supports uh, you know having a coat and tie, and, and it, it kind of speaks to just the whole issue of decorum
1: up here. Yeah, that I this will is a professional say this.
0: place. Yes,
1: you mentioned that most Republicans signed this letter. Mm-hmm. Absent from signing that letter, I believe, was Republican Josh Hawley of Missouri. Um, who has seemed to enjoy the, the ability to, to relax. This stuff. He he had a good quote about now I can vote from the floor on a Monday. <laughs> As you know, Chad, sometimes senators travel uh, the beginning of the week uh, right up uh, in, until it's voting time. And, you know, they may be dressed for the airport, not dressed for work. And, and he kind of made light of it and said, you know, you know, I think he voted in, in jeans and cowboy boots the other day no.
0: Yeah, and you've had senators <laughs> do this for years. Uh, there's different levels of enforcement. You know there's even a constitutional issue about this. You know, uh, the Constitution says that the House and Senate can make their own rules. Well, mm-hmm. they can, but as I say, there's not a rule here that anybody's aware of. Uh, but what is more applicable here is Article 1, section six of the Constitution, which talks about the speech or debate clause, which says you can't inhibit a member in their congressional activities. In other words, and this is mainly mm. to try, you know. So you the can't old days, they say won't.
1: that he is prohibited from voting as a United States senator That's because right. of how he is dressed.
0: And customarily what senators have done, if there's a vote called and they're coming from the gym or they've just gotten off a plane or they literally came in in a rainstorm. I've seen them come in in overcoats and turn around. They, they stand at the back of the chamber. They get the attention of the clerk. They give a thumbs up, thumbs down, and then they leave. And so they don't. But, but most of them. When it's come to actually speaking on the floor or something like that, you know, they they wear appropriate attire or if they're going to preside. Now, Senator Fetterman was seen presiding in, you know, these togs that he's kind of popularized here on Capitol Hill. And do you know what Senator Fetterman said? He said, if Republicans don't shut down the government, he promises to wear a suit.
1: We'll see if that's So that might be
0: the bargaining chip here that we haven't talked about yet. (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: it. (laughs) Forget everything else. John Fetterman will worse. I will say this. The one point about this that I think has not been talked about a lot is that these are accommodations that they're trying to make for John Fetterman, who continues to not only recover from a stroke, but from mental health treatment as well. He took Mm -hmm. time away from the Senate to deal with depression, uh, as we reported. Mm -hmm. Uh, I recently took time off to deal with some mental health issues as well. And so uh, perhaps uh, this is a sign that, that the Senate's looking. And they've changed rules before, right? I mean, they've allowed uh, nursing mothers to bring their their babies on the road. Isn't that a big deal you a see, few see, years ago? You now we're
0: getting into some – yeah, you see, this is the other interesting yeah. area here that you're getting into this idea that uh, – of accommodation. You know, Tammy Duckworth is, yeah. is the one about the nursing mother in a wheelchair – I remember there was a question about bringing a uh, a a seeing eye dog for an aide onto the floor. And I remember this was back in the early 1990s. And Robert okay. Byrd, who had been the majority leader, objected and blocked it because he didn't think that that, you know, messed with the times of decorum. Now, that's almost 30 years ago. And so times have changed. And maybe it's appropriate to, uh, you know, to consider some of these other things. Uh, but this is a little bit of a new frontier. Mm-hmm. Uh, as is. to what people people should wear on the Senate floor. And the House has an entirely different set of there are actual <laughs> rules there. I yes. mean, I can point to I can point to Rule 17, Clause 5 of the House rules that says you can't wear a hat on the floor. It's been there since
1: 1837. Mm. Well. I know that there have been members of the House turned away because they tried to vote uh, on their way to the House gym. And so, listen, you make a good point. This is something that maybe seems like, you know, secondary or, or not that big a deal in the grand scheme of things. But it has been a big issue of conversation and interest uh, both on Capitol Hill, off Capitol Hill. And I'm sure it's something we'll continue to, to look at. And maybe we'll see if it's enough to in uh, uh, the government shutdown. <laughs> so, Chad, uh, appreciate the time. Have a good weekend.
4: That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services.
2: In the Commonwealth, known for its horse racing, the campaigns for Kentucky's top job are off to the races. Democratic Governor Andy Bashir is looking to follow in his father's footsteps and be reelected as governor in the deep red state.
3: You know, we try to govern in a way where we don't pull a state to the right or the left, but move it forward for all of our families.
2: While Attorney General Daniel Cameron is trying to do what Andy Bashir did four years ago and beat the incumbent.
0: And this campaign has tried to embody the promise of America, that if you work hard and if you stand on principle, anything is possible.
2: The race has become the most closely watched election during an off-election year, as nationally, both political parties are trying to get their horse across the finish line and build momentum heading into 2024. The
3: biggest difference uh, with this governor's election compared to the one four years ago is that uh, Democrat Andy Bashir goes into it as the incumbent. Uh, now, being an incumbent can hurt in some circumstances if you've made some obvious errors uh, on the job and uh, you're unpopular, but Andy Bashir is going into Kentucky's 2023 gubernatorial election um, as a fairly popular incumbent uh, with fairly good job approval. Um, voters... Uh, Even voters who normally don't prefer the party of the governor uh, tend to be hesitant about changing horses in midstream, as they say. Uh, And so, you know, and Andy Beshear has the the advantage of inertia, has the advantage of the fact that voters prefer not to rock the boat when they're content.
2: And if we're looking at history, he's got it on his side as of right now, because last midterm election, we only saw one governor incumbent lose the entire midterm election cycle so certainly he has that incumbency advantage and history backs it up as of right now
3: most of the political science evidence suggests that the advantage incumbents have has been declining more and more voters are committed partisans whether they admit it or not and they tend to vote fairly consistently for their party regardless of job performance of either the people on their side or the other side Um, But this idea that voters are are hyper-partisan has been overblown. Um, Most states, including Kentucky, uh, still have a fair number of voters who can go either way, swing voters uh, willing to vote for either party, and they respond to job performance. uh, the polls suggest that Andy Bashir has been able to maintain his popularity with voters who are not Democrats, with voters who even tend to prefer Republicans. Um, one uh, fact from the polling in Kentucky's governor's election really jumps out and it's that many uh, people who dislike Joe Biden, who disapprove of Democratic President Joe Biden, are still saying that they're likely to vote for Democratic Governor Andy Bashir. These are clearly not Republican partisans answering those polls.
2: And this wouldn't be abnormal for Kentucky either, because, yes, while it is a red state and it has voted for the Republican presidential candidate for multiple elections now, this is a state that has traditionally not been afraid to elect Democrats in the state, including Bashir's father, who was a two-term Democratic governor not too long ago.
3: Unlike the states of the Deep South, which moved fairly swiftly from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, Kentucky's transition has been slower and more gradual. Um, Kentucky had a Republican Party, a Republican Party with some strength, at at a time when the Deep South had none to speak of, uh, where where they were totally dominated by the Democrats as the solid South. Um, In part, because Kentucky already had an established Republican Party, uh, you didn't see Southern white voters pull the massive shift uh, that they did in the South toward the Reagan-Bush Republican Party in the 80s and afterward. Uh, Kentucky voted for Bashir's father not once but twice, uh, he ran for re-election with popularity comparable to uh, his son's now, uh, and uh, he stayed popular as he left office. Uh, indeed, the, the popularity of Bashir the elder uh, is partly what helped the younger Bashir, the current governor, um, you know, exploit that name brand recognition and win in a state that had been tilting Republican. Uh, let's be clear though, um, Andy Bashir won as a Democratic gubernatorial candidate in an electorate that was otherwise very Republican in its leanings. All of the other statewide constitutional offices went to the GOP. The Republicans have continually increased their share of the General Assembly such that they have super majorities in both the State Senate and the State House. If Andy Boucher wins reelection as governor, he's doing so on about the most hostile terrain you could imagine a Democratic governor succeeding on.
2: And you give us a perfect transition there because the year that Andy Bashir was elected governor, like you just mentioned, top to bottom in the other statewide races, Republicans had just about a sweep there. And one of those uh, people who was able to flip a seat in Kentucky was uh, the attorney general election where Daniel Cameron won that race and replaced Bashir as the state attorney general. Now we find ourselves four years later with Daniel Cameron and Andy Bashir in kind of the reverse situation where Andy. Bashir was the attorney General defeating an incumbent uh, governor now he's the governor facing the attorney general as the incumbent so it's kind of the the reverse scenario here
3: yeah after Bashir won um, a lot of observers wanted to write it off as being a feature of the governor that he he beat that he replaced. Um, as as one local columnist put it uh, the outgoing governor was a jerk. Um, and as a political scientist, I fought against that explanation at the time. Voters are not as shallow as we treat them. They don't vote primarily based on personalities. Uh, they had, they, there were good reasons why voters uh, might have rejected the outgoing Republican and replaced him with Andy Bashir. Um, one good thing about Bashir's strength now, from my perspective, is that he's laying to rest the idea that his success four years ago. Uh, could be reduced entirely to personality, the personality of the last governor. Even if he loses, it's going to be a close loss um, and and he may well win. And that will just show that, you know, Kentucky voters are more complicated than than the sort of shallow analysis tends to uh, treat them as being.
2: Right. And I think when we look at this race, too, you know, you could probably make the argument, and I think candidate quality was a major liability. A lot of political analysts will tell you that for Republicans during last year's midterm elections. Now, you could probably make the argument that both candidates in this case are pretty strong candidates with their backgrounds and who they are. You know, uh, Cameron has had this, I think, Im- impressive ability to be popular with, with you know, having a background with Mitch McConnell, but also being able to get the endorsement of Donald Trump and have a very strong endorsement from uh, former President Trump. And like I just mentioned, you could argue that these two candidates are strong. Is that kind of the sentiment that you feel as well, that these are strong candidates for both parties here?
3: As political scientists rate candidates, yes, Kentucky's two gubernatorial contenders are strong candidates. Uh, Daniel Cameron brings real advantages to the race. One foot in the McConnell camp, one foot in the Trump camp. He's got you know Trump supporting him visibly. He's got the McConnell machine supporting him practically. Um, he's he's young. He's got a good, upbeat style that's kind of reminiscent of Ronald Reagan's Morning in America approach to campaigning. Um, Cameron's not losing primarily because of weaknesses on Cameron's side. Uh, Cameron seems to be behind, at least is behind in the polling, um, because of the strengths that the governor brings into the race. Uh, he was the face of government efforts to help uh, t- with two tragedies, we had uh, flooding in eastern Kentucky, tornadoes in western Kentucky, and as governor, Andy Bashir was the face of reconstruction efforts in those two places. The polls suggest that he's stronger than other Democrats have been in both those uh, ends of the state, eastern and western Kentucky, places where Cameron would have had to ring up uh, really lopsided victories to counterbalance the more democratic and more urban center of the state.
2: Now could that mean that this is a case where Daniel Cameron in many ways just is running for governor at the exact wrong time? Is that fair to say?
3: I, I put it a different way, um Andy Bashir had a lot of the things that candidates cannot control break in his favor going into this election. Uh, One of the things favoring the Democrat uh, in 2023 is that it's 2023 and we don't have a presidential election. We don't even have congressional elections going on. Uh, The fact we have an off-year election makes it easier for a Democrat to make our gubernatorial election about more state and local issues, less about the big national controversies where Kentucky voters tend to be more conservative.
2: And what kind of issues are are playing out in this race? Is abortion having the same effect here that it may be having in some of the other races across the country? Uh, are there some more hyper-local issues like the pension situation that was a major factor when Bashir was running against Matt Bevan four years ago? Or what are some of the major issues that are, are facing these two uh, that that both of them are really heavily campaigning on?
3: Abortion is no good as an issue for Republicans right now. You know, the Kentucky passed a a trigger law as it's called, a set of abortion restrictions that would be triggered only if the US Supreme Court threw out Roe v. Wade. And you know, when the legislature voted for that trigger law, nobody really thought the Supreme Court was likely to to throw out the entirety of Roe v. Wade. So it was really more of a a theoretical position taking or symbolic vote to pass that trigger law than it was you know, a, a practical set of abortion regulations. Lo and behold, uh, a conservative majority on the U.S. Supreme Court does indeed throw out Roe v. Wade. And all of a sudden, Kentucky's got some of the strictest abortion regulations in the country. Now, this may be a fairly conservative electorate. They may be on balance against abortion as it used to exist, you know, uh, under the 1970s uh, Supreme Court rulings but not even Kentucky's electorate seems to be as conservative as the abortion laws we have in place now. It's the Democratic candidate who's been able to explore, exploit the abortion issue in our gubernatorial election, holding up the Republican challenger as a, a supporter, Of these very strict abortion regulations that don't seem to have statewide support. We have good evidence that the current laws are a a bit too strict for the taste of the swing voter, and that Kentuckians recently rejected a constitutional amendment that would have locked those abortion regulations in place and tied the hands of the Supreme Court from overturning them. The voters chose not to endorse that uh, anti-abortion amendment, which leaves open the possibility the courts might step in and soften the anti abortion regulations we have now.
2: Right. And you really see Bashir trying to hit Cameron on this issue, whether it's his social media accounts or some of the statements he releases. And it looks like he's really trying to galvanize that suburban base that helped him defeat Bevan the first time, just based off what I've observed and how Bashir has been campaigning. So is that the only thing that Bashir's really campaigning on? I'm sure he's running on his record quite a lot, too. But what's the other issue that's kind of standing out to you that might play nationally as well?
3: Interestingly, the number one uh, policy issue that uh, the advertising reportedly has focused on has been crime. Now, because we don't get a, a detailed uh, report on how they're codifying crime as an issue, uh, we don't know what's really being counted uh, as a, as a, as crime advertising or criminal justice advertising. With Cameron, he played a role in the controversy over Breonna Taylor. The uh, the Tragic Louisville case um, uh, involving, you know, police uh, procedure and and no-knock warrants, uh, and so I know some of the Democratic advertising has gone after Cameron uh, based on his role in the Bre- Breonna Taylor investigation, uh, and and that's been a, a source of attack uh, by the Democrats. Now, once Cameron named his running mate, uh, Robbie Mills. Who had been involved in the attempts at teacher pension reforms, uh, it revived for the Democrats the teachers pension issue as a source of campaigning. Uh, they've they've said that by by choosing the running mate he did, Daniel Cameron has indicated that he's anti-teacher in the same way the last Republican governor was. So they're dredging up the the same campaign issues and rhetoric that helped Bashir win in the first place. Uh, so we've got that. Uh, I wouldn't. I don't know it's really a pension issue as opposed to a teacher issue, but some way, shape or form teacher pensions are lurking now in the campaign.
2: Well, I was going to say ed- education is kind of a unique issue in Kentucky where you don't just have the Republican Democrat divide. I think there's definitely an urban and and rural divide when it comes to the the Republican Party there, where, you know, there's a big push for charter schools from some of the suburban Republicans, but then you have a lot of rural Republicans who really campaign against charter schools and take, uh, in, in many ways, sometimes side with Democrats in the state on education issues. So I think it is a unique state in that regard, too.
3: The, the the longest lasting Republican stronghold in Kentucky is in southeastern Kentucky. Uh, that's an area that's been Republican, mountain Republican area since the Civil War. The Republicans in eastern and especially southeastern Kentucky are not especially conservative. And education policy is just one of the policy issues where we don't see that suburban style conservatism uh, among these Kentucky voters. Um, it, you know, if we hold an election that's based on bread and butter issues l- like education, families, uh, those voters aren't especially Republican and they're willing to consider Democrats. Uh, there's one district in heavily, heavily Republican Eastern Kentucky that just returned a Democrat to the state legislature. It's sort of indicating uh, that. That, you know, it's not only at the gubernatorial level that they'll consider Democrats, uh, depending on what the issues are that they're voting on.
2: And if we could move on to what this means for the country nationally and why we should paying be paying attention to the Kentucky gubernatorial election. You know, how do you think this could impact 2024? Is there a sign that... Uh, whether or not Republicans can have a red wave going into next year. Uh, and also could this mean something for former president Trump as well as president Biden, potentially.
3: You know, Kentucky is unique, uh, both because we have a lot of Democrat Democrats who will vote Republican and a lot of Republicans who will vote for Democrats. Uh, but also because we're holding this election at a time when the country is not fighting out its ongoing culture war. Um, uh, no matter what happens here, it's unlikely to be replicated uh, next year when the culture war will be raging yet again, and it won't be about state and local Kentucky issues. Now, that being said, a lot of politics is perception, and how people perceive the implications of an election can shape the next election. Consultants are often fighting the last war. Um, if Andy Bashir, a Democrat, manages to win in such a pro-Trump state, uh, you better believe that Democrats around the country, especially in uh, states with more of a rural or small town population, are going to be looking at Bashir's success and trying to figure out how they can bottle, uh, bottle that uh, secret sauce and carry it over to their own, their own elections.
2: And when we talk about what this can mean for Bashir, I think it is a lot more than just you know an opportunity to get reelected. You know, uh, Larry Glover, who is the uh, one of the radio hosts for our Fox affiliate there in Lexington, asked me when I was on his show the other day, "Could you see that rising star designation be a, be anointed to Daniel Cameron if he's able to unseat an incumbent like Andy Bashir?" and i I kind of said I, I think it would be hard not to have that designation if he's able to pull off a a win like this in such a high profile race but i think that also could apply to andy Bashir, where a lot of democrats are going to be talking about andy Bashir if he's able to pull this off and i think the same could go for daniel cameron right
3: kentucky right now is the center ring in the political circus uh, all eyes are here because it's the most exciting thing happening right now and no matter who wins this gubernatorial election, they're going to have a disproportionate national profile. Uh, for Bashir to win in such a red state, people are going to be talking about what's next for him. Um, and uh, and they're you know Democrats are going to try to copy him. If Daniel Cameron wins as a young, upbeat African American Republican, he's going to skyrocket into national prominence as well. Uh, either way, the the winner of this election. Um, is going to be on the national stage.
2: Right. And it could even the the idea of a and this might be way too much of a hypothetical, but the idea of maybe Bashir being a vice presidential candidate for the Democrat nominee four years from now or maybe even a presidential candidate himself is that unrealistic?
3: Who knows what Andy Bashir wants in terms of his own political career, but uh, national voices were already teasing the idea of Bashir, uh, as a presidential candidate, back when he was enjoying his popularity during the COVID, you know, pandemic era, uh, before he had won re-election. If if he wins re-election, I expect uh, those those little uh, asides regarding Bashir's national possibilities to to grow, to for people to start talking about Bashir even more seriously as uh, maybe a vice presidential, maybe a presidential candidate. Uh, he would be a logical place for Joe Biden to look as if he, he wins reelection as he thinks about, you know, replenishing a, a cabinet for a second term. Um, either way, if Bashir pulls this off uh, as he so far appears on on track to do, uh, it's it's great for any political ambitions he might have in the future.
2: Dr. Stephen Voss, it was great talking Kentucky politics with you a couple years ago. It's still great to do it today. Thank you so much for your time.
3: Thanks for having me on your
2: show, Ron. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington, the Fox Business Network Univision Republican Presidential Primary Debate is this Wednesday. We preview the big night and analyze the latest Fox News power rankings, plus a wrap-up of Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky's trip to Washington and his effort to get more U.S. aid. I'm Ryan Schmelz. Thank you for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington.
3: Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com.